You're listening to Remote Possibilities, a podcast on the intersection of technology, society, and education, brought to you by MarketScale. Now here's your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Remote Possibilities, the podcast that explores the promise and the perils of distance learning. I'm your host, Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. With me today is Aaliyah Jackson from 321 Insight. Aaliyah has over 20 years experience working with technology training and implementation in K-12 school districts across the country. From designing, implementing, and managing professional development programs to planning and rolling out large-scale initiatives in school districts, her experience helps make sure 321 Insight's products are effective and easy to use. And Leah, your position there is, is president, correct? That is correct. Hi, Kevin. Great. Well, Leah, thank you so much for joining me on the Remote Possibilities podcast today. I was I was thinking the last time I saw you in person was at TCEA back in February, which seems about 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> Feels like it. That was my last trip before. It was yeah, it was my last trip too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I keep going back and I have had dreams of you know, airport bars and <laughs> ballroom B with cheese cubes and having interesting conversations with with professionals. Um, Those were so the how, 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 yeah, it, was, it was it was a different world. It was what I call uh, BP before pandemic versus Absolutely. what we're in now, which is is after pandemic. So, um, but let's get started, and maybe you can talk a little bit about three, two, one insight uh, and the work that you do there, and maybe within the context of before the pandemic and, and after the pandemic. Sure, thank you. So 321 Insight, we're an online professional development and training company uh, focused on really easy to understand and consume bite-sized chunks of training in two main areas. The first is trauma-informed practices in schools. That's training for all staff uh, on sort of the research and then actionable things they can do to help address the impacts of trauma on students. And the other area is uh, para-educator effectiveness. So training for the educational assistants, the EAs, the IAs, the paras in the classroom that uh, often don't get a lot of training, but are paired with students with really high needs and challenging situations. So we developed our company to provide a sort of a new format of of training for for those roles um, that requires just a few minutes. So three to 13 minute videos with really job specific tools. Uh, We talk a lot about, we're really focused on moving people from awareness to action. So everything that we do is something that you can learn and then try to apply and practice right away. So before the, oh yeah, is that helpful? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) very helpful. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about social emotional learning. Now that's a phrase that, um, it's kind of like digital equity uh, where it was a conceptual thing that, you know, we, again, we go to TCEA and, and sit in a session and people would talk about it. And for me, it was always just kind of this like gauzy uh, conceptual thing, but there was no, no real action that you could associate it with. Right. Um, since the pandemic, it seems like that phrase is now on the, the tip of everyone's tongue. Um, so you have a perspective of, social emotional learning before it was cool. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about that uh, and, and what it means uh, now? 
Yeah, so at the heart of social emotional learning is really self-awareness and self-regulation and self-management. Um, there's some other, there's other uh, criteria or dimensions to social emotional learning, but those are really the main ones that we focus in. And what that really means is that students have to be aware of their thinking, they have to be aware of their bodies, they have to be aware of their where they're putting their attention, but then they also have to know how to regulate themselves. So being able to control or manage uh, their attention, their thoughts, their emotions, and their, their physical sensations. And in order to do that, they, in order to to learn anything, they have to really be regulated. Their brain has to be ready to receive and learn information. Our take on this has always been you have to start with the adults. So everything we do is focused on staff and focused on the adult's role in working with students. We say this a lot at 321 Insight, only a well-regulated adult can help a student regulate. So many interventions and so many initiatives in schools are cognitive-based, so meaning that People are teaching, they're basing, you know, they're trying to reason with students, they're trying to uh, explain to them why this uh, incentive or this consequence is going to help improve behavior. But if a student isn't able to access their thinking brain, they're called dysregulated, uh, they're not going to learn anything. So back to your original point, like we've, we've always focused on the adults. Now there is this incredible awareness and emphasis on social emotional learning and uh, for good reasons. <laughs> uh, and we see the level of stress and trauma. It's off the charts for everybody and including the adults who are then supposed to be teaching those skills to students. So our focus is on helping the adults create their own self-regulation skills, their own self-awareness, and then move into, well, then how do you teach those to students, both in person using, you know, trauma-informed practices with safety protocol for COVID or in remote learning situations. Now, I'll assume that these techniques um, were all developed with the idea of in-person learning in schools, right? I mean, now that there's been this shift to remote learning, I'm, I will also assume that there are different um, types of traumas that uh, students and teachers uh, are dealing with in this remote setup. Have you had to pivot uh, or change techniques to um, kind of acknowledge this shift? Yes, we've we've added quite a bit of new content uh, specific to what's going on right now. So the research around trauma uh, came out of the 90s, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but they identified 10 criteria, 10 categories of adverse, adverse experiences that could happen as a child that could impact learning, behavior, and health. Uh, and so what we're seeing now is you have those original 10, which are centered around abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. And what we're seeing now is a, the pandemic is also kind of accounting as a, an adverse experience for everybody. So prior to the pandemic, you already had almost 50% of kids coming to school with enough trauma to impact their brain uh, and their behavior. And now you have that number has grown. It's more, in, and there's some amounts of trauma that are ubiquitous, right? So, and you add that to students who are still doing remote learning. So they're still at home. Their home environment may not be great. Their family may have experienced loss, either job loss or a family member may have uh, actually died from COVID. Uh, there's 
you know, if they're living in a dysfunctional environment and they're around their home more, that we tend to see uh, child abuse and domestic abuse uh, rates rise during times like this. So absolutely, there's still this need to, to um, approach students from a trauma-informed perspective, but the way you're going to do that is different if you're not in the classroom. Um, we have added a lot of information about how do you develop a relationship with a student uh, via Zoom or via a technology platform. This, there's three main cat, uh, three main areas that we focus on to create a trauma-informed environment: predictability, safe relationships, and opportunities for engagement, and then opportunities for regulation. So the way you do that via the camera is different than the way you would do that in the classroom, but it's still as important, and there's still ways to be effective with it. I think a really good example of this, Kevin, is how much of our own, uh, uh, as the adult, how much of, uh, of our communication is nonverbal. And when you're uh, looking through a camera lens, a lot of nonverbals are sort of tamped down. So you have to exaggerate some of the things with your facial expressions. You have to exaggerate uh, you know, your tone of voice to really make people feel safe and comfortable, you know, where you look at the camera. I think we all sort of experience that with our Zoom calls, right? Are you looking at yourself? Are you looking at the person, you know, the picture of the person? Or are you looking at the camera? Um, right. Those are really important when you're trying to develop a relationship with somebody uh, via technology. So that's just one example. But yeah, we've added a lot of content. And then we actually added a whole section on for schools who are reopening brick and mortar uh, and they have to follow safety protocol, obviously, how do you still uh, implement trauma-informed practices? How do you how do you handle your nonverbals when you're wearing a mask because you're right. covering a lot of your face, right? Or how do you right. do transitions when everyone has to be six feet apart? So really important and relevant information that we've added. Have, have you identified any um, positives or advantages of say Zoom or you know that sort of video conferencing when it comes to having these sort of conversations. I mean, when I have a I have a notebook here, like where I'm, I'm kind of desperately jotting down like you know silver linings from from all this madness. And um, you know, one of them is as a parent, I've had so much more interaction with my kids' teachers than mm -hmm. I ever had before. <laughs> I mean, because of the ease of the Zoom, right? And, mm -hmm. and instead of getting in the car and like, you know, the back to school night was much more productive from my office than it was if I was sitting in the back of the class, like looking at my watch, getting, get, getting ready to get to the next class and moving on. Have you, have you been able to identify that or is that just me uh, being desperately uh, <laughs> finding the class half full? I mean, I think that there are some students, as you know, that benefit from, not being in the school environment um, and are thriving in this way. I would say when it comes to trauma-informed practices in particular, um, I, I don't know that I would say silver lining. I think that it's, it is equally challenging to develop the relationship and to help people feel safe when you're not with them. Yeah. Um, but I think that there are certainly maybe more opportunities for private one-on-one -on -one interactions Right. Um, that maybe don't exist in the classroom. So maybe a student is more comfortable. I mean, it just depends on what their home environment is uh, all around, I would say. Or even just like the, the, the subject matter, um, just kind of having a little bit of a distance might make it easier. I don't know. Well, you know what? Here's a, here's a good example, and I'm glad you brought, brought this up. 
so part of what we talk about all the time is predictability and how do you create your uh, classroom routine to be really predictable? How do you do things like morning meetings or oper you know, regulation breaks throughout your day so that students know what to expect and they are able to sort of pace and, and go accordingly? I think distance learning has required teachers to do that in a new way. Um, it's required them to have a predictable schedule because you <laughs> you have to know when you have to be where and, and uh, on what. Um, so I think part of it is that I think it's it has increased parent communication as you've mentioned. Uh, so I do think that there's more visibility into that uh, that wasn't there before. So I, I would say that's a positive takeaway. All right, all right. I'll put a check next to that on my, <laughs> on my list here. Then. Uh, well, let's let's focus on. The faculty, as, as you said in the beginning, that you, your work at 321 Insight, um, you have a focus on the adults who therefore are then implementing these techniques uh, with the students. I'm assuming that that has had a huge uh, upsurge uh, as well. Yeah, so we had um, in the fall, oh, sorry, in the spring, when the school closures first happened, we saw a tremendous uptick in usage of uh, of our online PD by our existing clients. So, um, you know, whereas a lot of our clients and districts had created a PD plan for the year and they were using our videos and our discussion guides and our materials during their training days, or they had sort of a set schedule for people to access and do it, all of a sudden they had a lot more time and then a need for a PD. So we saw an incredible uptick there. We've uh, gained quite a few new clients over the last few months uh, with the, um, because of the flexibility of what we offer and the fact that districts now can organize and provide PD to, to staff regardless of what their structure is. So we have a lot of districts who are using uh, our videos on a Zoom with their staff from you know all different places, and then using the discussion guides and the job-specific tools to facilitate sort of an extension of what they're learning and application to their specific environment. We have other districts who are back in schools, and so they're using it in a slightly more traditional way, but maybe they're not all in the same room during their PD time, but they're all in the school, right? So I think just the nature of really short, brief, very specific and relevant bits of content that can be accessed from anywhere is really resonating right now. And that's um, delivered in like in an asynchronous Correct. format. Correct. Yep. So it's not something that everyone has to be at the same place at the same time. No. And, and, but they could use it if they, you know, if they, if they have a, a training planned, right? So, but no, it can be, it can be accessed independently at any time or it can be accessed as a group and then there's quizzes and management track, you know, tracking involved in it. So if they want to have them be accountable for it, they can do it that way as well. Got it. Here's another um, BP versus uh, AP question. Social emotional learning. Was it before seen as integral into the day-to-day -day operations of a district as it appears to be now, or was it something that was, almost supplemental maybe uh, before so, the pandemic? Not to discount the very hard work that many, many districts have done to really fully integrate social emotional learning into their days. But I do think that prior to the pandemic, it was sometimes operated as like a 15 minute, we're gonna do social emotional learning now. 
uh, as a group. And so uh, in that way, a little peripheral. Often we saw an emphasis on anti-bullying as, as social emotional learning, which it is part of it. But um, so I think what, what we're seeing now is there is a there's a recognition of you can't just come back from six months of disruption and just start teaching math where you left off that there's too much that has happened. There's so much going on in the world beyond the pandemic that is causing tension and fear and anxiety for people. Uh, and there's an upcoming ele election cycle, which is gonna also, you know, it, which adds to it. I think there's a recognition now that you have to address the, the mental health and the regulation of people before you can jump into academics. So I do think because of that, it has been more integrated. I still think it's a really challenging thing to do. Um, and it, I believe that our approach is most effective because it really, like I said in the beginning, it really starts with the adult's own social emotional skills and then their ability to model and to, to teach students uh, those and to help students regulate themselves so they're able to learn, ready to learn, um, I think is is really effective. From your perspective, how many districts or like where on the spectrum are we in terms of, well, we'll just focus on the U.S. for now, but like the 15,000 school districts, the district leaders that I've spoken to um, are already kind of in their own bubble because they're already very progressive and, in, and innovative and are, are, are a step ahead on these things. There are so many districts that are not. Uh, from your perspective, I mean, where are we on that on that spectrum of everyone having a recognition uh, of the need for this sort of uh, content and development? That's a really good question. I can really only speak to my perspective around trauma-informed practices in schools. So I think if you look at social-emotional learning, it's a much broader uh, topic, and I think it's it's a little bit more directed at student curriculum often. But but what I can speak to is is specifically around trauma informed practices. So districts who have developed a plan and a priority around creating environments that are universally effective. So they're going to support all students, but they're going to be especially supportive of kids who have experienced trauma. So that fifty percent, like growing fifty percent of kids who have enough adversity to impact behavior. And I, I don't have a percentage for you, Kevin, but I will say I think that there is a really fast growing awareness of the need in this country. I would say that most districts, it's every district I talk to, obviously, because of the nature of our work, but I would say even just reading articles and seeing what people are talking about, I think most districts are aware of the need and are committing to wanting to do something. What, you know, the, the way that that looks in implementation, right? That means in some districts, they're talking about it, they're just sort of figuring out what do they want to do. Maybe they've introduced a book study uh, to, to staff, or maybe they're, you know, introducing a little bit of a video or something. And then other districts are fully, fully ingrained and, and integrated uh, into their environments and their procedures and policies. Um, I mentioned earlier, we, we talk about awareness to action. And so in that first example that I gave of maybe they have a book study, that's great. That's really wonderful. We want everyone to be aware of this. But too often, we leave it at that. And, you know, here's this problem, but we don't really talk about what can you actually do about it. And the other piece I think that's unique to, to 321 Insight in this is that often traditional PD 
is consumed by teachers or teams from a school or a district, um, it's relative. Well, it's it's often not offered to classified staff at the same rate as it is to certified staff. So when you look at something like trauma-informed practices, which are culture and climate of a school district, every adult needs to have both the mindset and a skill set to address it. So instead of requiring the few trainers that got trained to come back and figure out how to translate that to the job of a bus driver or a, to the receptionist, what we're doing is job-specific PD. So, hey, hey, you're the, ca- or you're the janitor. Here's how you can do this every day in your job that's really specific to your job. Um, so I think that that when I talk about sort of, you know, where people are on that spectrum, I think lots and lots and lots of districts are still in the awareness and, and recognizing the importance. And, and what we're doing is trying to help move them along the spectrum to really uh, fully integrated. Do you see the size of the district? I guess I have a question about scale. Um, uh, like a lot of either technologies or techniques I think that the smaller a district is, um, the easier it is to kind of implement something like this. And then you look at the school district of Philadelphia or Los Angeles, right? Or, you know, uh, New York City, which is larger than most education systems of most countries. Uh, how, how do you scale something like this? So I think the key to scaling and implementation is, is by having flexible high quality resources. So the, the way we've organized our toolkit of materials is basically you can take what we have and use it to introduce, or maybe if you're in a big district, that's all you're gonna get to right now is just that initial understanding the research, creating the mindset piece. Um, or maybe if you're in a smaller district where that's quicker work because you're fewer people, you can then use the next phase of our resources, which is really to look at your discipline policies, looking at your functional behavior assessments, looking at your, um, your uh, behavior intervention plans to make sure they are trauma-informed and you can move that work and scale it pretty quickly. So I think it really just depends on the priorities and, and structure and how much time they have to focus on it and where they are in their, in their Got work. it. Got it. So looking forward, um, and again, reaching back uh, to my list of, of silver linings, do you see um, this renewed or you know, this, this, this new energy uh, and emphasis on emotional learning sticking around whenever we go back to whatever normal was? I hope so. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, uh, it's the whole child emphasis, right? It's, and I see it with my own kids. It's okay to be a little personal. Um, I have an 11 year old who is really not, uh, he's not a great candidate for distance learning. Um, he's actually not a great candidate for in-person learning either. If I get right down to it, he's, he doesn't love school. And so when he was in traditional brick and mortar school, I saw less of a, of an effort or an understanding of the importance of his relationships to his teachers or to help him cope with frustration in a way that was, you know, effective for him. I saw a little bit more, uh, instead I saw more emphasis on sort of consequences of behavior and, you know, wanting to focus on academics. Now I think that there's a pretty, pretty well, you know, understood need for that um, because they wouldn't get him otherwise, right? They can't, he's, his camera isn't even on half of the time in his classroom, right? So 
whether or not he's engaged is is really a bit it's a much bigger challenge i think now with distance learning and so i've i in his particular school i've gotten i've been um, contacted by the counselor they want you know they have weekly meetings with him specific on how do you handle frustration when you're when there's something challenging that you're working on in class. So I think even that to me shows some commitment and I think it will continue because I think they're going to see that it it was more effective by focusing there before jumping right into the, the academics. Yeah, it's funny. My youngest is uh, about the same age and uh, same same situation. I mean, it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an existential <laughs> It's an existential crisis for everyone, but then add in being in early teenagers and you know, just forget it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a big challenge. Okay, well, look, one last question that I always ask, and again, back to the glass half full. Um, what are you hopeful about? What are you, what, what are you looking forward to uh, through your work that you think will advance um, the school, school cultures in this country in the, in the next five years? I mean, at the mission, at the core of our mission is really to help students thrive. And to, I think, I think this emphasis on trauma-informed approaches is really going to impact broadly. Um, if the, the natural response of someone who's been through trauma is to feel distrust towards adults, to feel uh, to to not necessarily be in full control of their their behavior, and I think that if we are committing to creating these environments, and I think given the fact that districts are now a little more open to maybe online asynchronous professional development because of of our situation, I think we actually can get there a little faster. I think that uh, districts can create environments that are are supportive of all kids and help them be ready to learn. And I'm ho I, I'm hopeful that, that that's where we're going with this and that even post-pandemic, we will see, like we mentioned earlier, this, this continued commitment to the social-emotional skills of kids, but also to staff. A big part of, of what I am seeing now that I'm, I'm really happy about is there's awareness that staff self-care and wellness, so educator wellness, is core to the success of a district right now. And a lot of what we do is, is like I mentioned, is around helping adults manage their own, be aware of their own self-awareness, but also manage their own regulation. So how do you how do you show up prepared and ready to support kids in a way, you know, that you are 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 feeling fulfilled and well and not burned out and stressed. And so I do hope that that sticks around as well. And I think it will. That's great. That's great. I hope so too. Well, Aliyah, I really appreciate your time. I knew that the toughest part would be uh, stopping the conversation, but that's, <laughs> that's where we are. Um, you know, your insights uh, and the work that you do uh, is helping uh, lots of people, and uh, and I appreciate that. And uh, and again, thanks for your time and insights. Well, thank you, Kevin. It was great to, to connect with you. And uh, hopefully, we'll see each other in person soon. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> great. So thanks, and, and thanks to the listeners for uh, tuning in to this latest episode of Remote Possibilities. I hope you click around and find us again soon.